the Egyptians first brought into use the names of the twelve gods, which the Greeks adopted from them, and first erected altars, images, and temples to the gods, and first engraved upon stone the figures of animals. From Herodotus's Histories, Book 2. Long thought to be the first of all civilizations, Egypt looms in our historical imagination. For those of us in the West, Egypt is an enigmatic forebear. We know that the Egyptians came before us, but it can seem hard to draw the lines that lead from Egypt to our Western traditions. These lines are not straight. They curve and meander, like the wavering crests of sand dunes subject to desert winds, like the plot lines and stories of star-crossed lovers, but the lines, the connections, are there, and they are substantial. I speak of Egypt being enigmatic. Like all enigmas, like all mysteries, there are things both familiar and strange to be found here. We see the hieroglyphs painted on limestone blocks, see the graceful human figures dance among the strange symbols and depictions of animals and hybrid creatures that are purportedly representations of gods. Are these our brothers, our mothers and fathers, what have we received from them that bespeaks of our heritage, that demonstrates to ourselves and to the rest of the world that we, too, share in their patrimony? And what is there that distinguishes us from these, our exotic cultural ancestors, who worshipped strange gods and yet ate the same bread that fed our more familiar Roman forebears? We may find some answers to these questions in the era of Egyptian history that succeeded the early dynastic period described in episode 15. After the first two dynasties of kings had spent their vigor and given way, the power of fresh blood on the throne would animate the realm again and drive the Egyptian people to new concrete accomplishments that would continue to memorialize their vitality even to our own day. This time period is known as the Old Kingdom. Before continuing on with the story of Egypt, I wanted to take time at the beginning of this episode to remind everyone of my website, western-traditions.org, that is western-traditions.org. Links to the episodes are posted there, as are maps, source lists, and a variety of good books to read if you are further interested in any particular topic or episode. You can also support the podcast there through Patreon or through PayPal donations. In the future, I hope to be able to sell books and other merchandise through the website in order to further support my research and production costs. More importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word and let friends and other interested parties know that this podcast can be found on Spotify, on my website, western-traditions.org, and at the host website, podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where I initially upload each episode. Finally, I want to take this opportunity to thank all of my listeners and my supporters. In particular, today, I wanted to thank Aaron Brillhart, who has listened since the first episode came out earlier this year, and who recently became a new Patreon supporter of the podcast. 
His input was significant in helping me to get this podcast started. However, I'm sure Aaron, as well as everyone else, is ready for more history. So, let's get on with it. This episode will cover the period of Egyptian history known as the Old Kingdom. It follows what is now known as the Early Dynastic Period, which I discussed in the first episode on Egypt. Given the ultra-long history of this ancient realm, it's going to take multiple episodes to get the whole story out. So this episode will just focus on the roughly five centuries, from about 2700 BC until 2200 BC, that constitute the timeline of the Old Kingdom. This period is famous for its powerful rulers, its ingenious, though largely anonymous, architects in their works, and for the rising hegemony of the kingdom over its own people and the peoples of the land surrounding it. If you listened to the previous podcast on ancient Egypt, you may remember that the long timeline of the pharaoh's rule over the land is divided into dynasties, each dynasty consisting of a series or chain of rulers from the same family or household. Some dynasties ruled for hundreds of years, Some were much shorter. Just the first two dynasties lasted for the entire 400-year span of the early dynastic period. The Old Kingdom period, lasting half a millennium, was was managed by four succeeding dynasties of rulers, the third through the sixth dynasties in Egypt's long history. In Western countries today, we consider a government stable if it lasts for just a handful of years. In the United States, a president and his political party are considered successful if they remain in power eight consecutive years. It is hard for any of us, then, to imagine the kind of continuity and stability suggested by these long administrations in ancient Egypt. The Old Kingdom also brought Egypt onto the world stage in many ways. Already, before the Third Dynasty, it is known that the Egyptians had a presence on the Palestinian coast, most likely for the purpose of trade. The succeeding dynasties of kings would seek to expand Egyptian influence militarily as well in all directions. This period is probably also the one most familiar to the average listener in the sense that it is during these five centuries that Egypt would erect the Great Pyramids and other works that modern listeners are probably most familiar with. And the kings of this period would enjoy more personal power than their successors would for more than a thousand years. This height of authoritarian power as always in human dynamics, would lead to its own demise, as the people immediately underneath the royal family, those nobles who ruled the gnomes of Egypt, sought relief in less centralized approaches to government. But for the time that they endured, and they did so for five centuries, the rulers of Old Old Kingdom Egypt dominated this realm. They steered it through the unknown waters of international politics, which was, in some sense, a completely new political dynamic in human affairs as great powers emerged from the unions of the first cities and sought to sustain their own dominance through trade, exploration, and warfare. The expansion of Egypt into the mountains of the south, across the deserts to the west, into the Mediterranean to the north and eastward through Palestine in the direction of Mesopotamia, provides an excellent example of the way that the agricultural revolution, described at various points in the first unit of podcasts for this series, powered human civilization and enabled its triumph over Stone Age lifestyles. There is no doubt that the less civilized people living at the borders of the Egyptian realm were, individually, superior specimens of humanity. I have previously described how 
hunter-gatherer individuals would most likely have been stronger and hardier than their agricultural counterparts, and especially physically superior to men and women living in the cities. Nevertheless, the individually weaker people of the cities and the farmlands that surrounded them possessed many advantages over their cousins living in the wild lands and adhering to Paleolithic traditions. One of those advantages was numbers. Another was organization. Numbers meant little if there was not some authority to harness and focus their energy. And there was industry as well. A large power like Egypt could produce weapons and tools in abundance for their military forces, whereas hunter-gatherers and or people simply not as far along the road to civilization as the Egyptians, people who were perhaps just beginning to embrace the Neolithic package and had not yet conceived of cities, such people could only produce goods slowly and generally at a rate little above subsistence, just enough to get by. This expansion of civilization, then, the extension of Egyptian power into the hinterlands, should create a picture in your mind that is both beautiful and awful. Yes, the Egyptians and civilized people everywhere, as they asserted their dominance in the ancient world, would ensure a future of greater material delights in the world, running water, access to goods from distant lands, a steady, reliable diet, strong defense against enemies and predators. But in creating a future, they destroyed a past. For a 100,000 years or more, humans had lived as a scant few people continue to do so today, by roaming in search of game and forageable food, living off the land, taking only what they needed, owning nothing more than a few tools or weapons and the animal skins that they wore when it was too cold to simply go about naked. Planning little and awaiting what future the world might bring them in terms of weather and the abundance or lack or lack of game. The growth of cities and the increase of their power would erase these lifestyles. It was easy to do in some sense because our hunter-gatherer ancestors naturally left little trace of their culture. Their footprints lay light upon the land. An entire clan could be wiped out and the remaining possessions of its defunct members could be easily amassed in the apartment of a single modern city dweller perhaps just making a small pile in the living room. So the history of ancient Egypt is really the history of the entire human race surging forward, creating much that was beautiful and much that was spectacular, as we, as we shall see with the construction of the pyramids and the advance of science and medicine and literacy and the maintenance of far-flung trade routes that brought people living in distant lands into contact with one another. But progress rolls over the grave of culture, as mercilessly as the elements, but usually much more quickly, the advance of civilization wore down and eventually obliterated nearly every sign of our Stone Age ancestors, their minds gone and their cultures with them. All that we have that tells us of their existence are scattered bones, the occasional sight bearing signs of fire, the manufacture of their tools and weapons, or a symbol drawn on a rock. We see Egypt today in ruins, the massive pyramids outlined against the eternal blue sky, we hear the wind whip through the wreckage of its scattered broken monuments. Apartment complexes, industrial and commercial centers, suburban subdivisions, all are built today within viewing distance of these memorials, sometimes nearly on top of them. The Egyptians certainly had this in common with us. They too lived among the ruins of earlier societies, not as visible as the ruins they would leave perhaps, but ruins nonetheless. Like ourselves, maybe they were curious about their ancestors about the men and women that walked their land in search of game thousands of years before and left isolated signs of their passing here and there in rock carvings and in the dilapidated remnants of their dwellings. Like us as well, the Egyptians probably spent most of their time looking forward, 
thinking about the future, about how to survive, both as individuals and as people. But given what we know about their spirituality, about the Egyptian understanding of cycles, perhaps the ancient Egyptians knew all along that they were neither the beginning nor the end, neither the epitome of human culture nor a strange outlier. Instead, they were merely another tributary to the long, mighty river of human history that, like the Nile, inherits its waters from Africa and pours them out on the rest of the world like an everlasting baptism of civilization. Let us earnestly begin our study and investigation of the Old Kingdom by looking at its kings. I use the word king to describe the ruler of Egypt because there is no evidence of the use of the term pharaoh before this stage of the development of the country. The first recorded use of the term occurs sometime around 1200 BC. That does not mean, however, that the kings of Egypt were not called pharaohs at some point prior to that date. Now, during this episode and those that come, I will sometimes call the kings of Egypt pharaohs just out of habit. And regardless, when I use either term, I speak of the monarch, of the nominal ruler of Egypt, prior to this realm's subjugation under the Roman Empire many centuries later. Now, the first king of the Third Dynasty, the first ruler of the Old Kingdom, was a man named Zoser. Spellings for this ancient Egyptian name vary, but I will pronounce it as Zoser, Z-O-S-E-R. He is remembered not merely for being the first pharaoh of his dynasty and of the Old Kingdom, but also because his reign heralded the great achievements of the Egyptians during this period. In the prior episode on Egypt, I went briefly into the beliefs and other factors that shaped Egyptian life. Now, with the Old Kingdom, we will finally begin to see the great works of Egypt appear, the pyramids and other architectural wonders, some of which endure to this day. And it is during Zoser's reign that Egypt begins to be more than just another collection of once independent city-states, as we will see in the various kingdoms that arise in Mesopotamia, beginning with Shumer and Akkad and continuing through the time of Babylonia and Assyria. Under Zoser, Egypt begins to make its mark. It distinguishes itself from all other nations of the ancient world. Zoser directed his vizier, Imhotep, to build a pyramid which continues to stand in our own day. It is known as Zoser's Step Pyramid. For a long time, this pyramid was considered to have been the first such construction. Now, archaeology has since shown that step pyramids go back at least to the time of the first dynasty of kings and perhaps before. However, there is no doubt that there is an advance in the ambition of such projects under Zoser. One of Zoser's first acts was to move the capital of the kingdom to the city of Memphis, a city in Lower Egypt, near the Nile Delta. Formerly, the capital of the Egyptian kingdom was at an unknown location, referred to in the surviving texts as Thinis, T-H-I-N-I-S. Experts suggest that this capital was located somewhere in Upper Egypt, so Zoser's movement of his capital to Lower Egypt must have had some political significance, and perhaps some commercial significance as well, since Egyptian ships during the Old Kingdom began to increase their presence in the Mediterranean, and to trade with other cities along the coasts of northern Africa and in Palestine. But Zoser's most significant act was probably the building of his step pyramid. Zoser's pyramid is not as tall nor as massive as greater pyramids that would come later under the reigns of Khufu and other pharaohs. However, it is the first pyramid created in Saqqara, 
the necropolis outside the capital of Memphis. The word necropolis is Greek for city of the dead. Thus, Saqqara was a location in which funerals and other burial ceremonies were held for the rulers and later for other important people in Egypt. Their bodies were presumably placed in tombs or, in the cases of the pharaohs, in the pyramids themselves. Now, however great a man Zoser may or may not have been, he gave the orders for the construction of his pyramid, but he did not actually carry out or organize its building. That was left to his vizier, Imhotep. In the first episode on Egypt, I related how the rulers of Egypt typically had a chief steward or a chief of staff who managed much of the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. The name of this position in the king's household was vizier, V-I-Z-I-E-R. In some cases, and at different times, the vizier was essentially the real ruler of Egypt. If the pharaoh chose to pass his life and join the pleasures of power and not the responsibilities, he could depend on his vizier to carry out these day-to-day acts necessary to maintain the kingdom. At other times, a strong pharaoh might merely use his vizier as an assistant in formulating and achieving his own plans for Egypt. However powerful or self-willed Zoser may have been, his vizier Imhotep was certainly more than competent. Historians believe that he was the chief architect of the necropolis Saqqara. More than that, he surrounded Zoser's pyramid with a city's worth of limestone structures, courts, altars, walkways, and more. Time has not been kind to these structures, but their remnants remain to attest to the industry and genius of this great vizier of Egypt. And Imhotep is not merely remembered by archaeologists. The Egyptians of this time and later apparently knew and understood that they had been gifted with a genius in their midst. Imhotep was later deified by generations of Egyptians and remembered for thousands of years as a great architect and as a physician. He is also alleged to have written a great deal about wisdom, but such writings have not been preserved if they did in fact exist. He was also apparently a high priest of Ra, the Egyptian sun god. Other great kings and viziers would follow in the succeeding dynasties. Anyone vaguely familiar with ancient Egypt probably knows the name of Khufu, a.k.a. Cheops, a king of the fourth dynasty. He erected during his reign the Great Pyramid, the tallest and most massive man-made structure on earth for nearly 4,000 years. Among Khufu's sons was Khafre, that's K-H-A-F-R-E, who built another pyramid that still stands today, though it is not as massive as that of his father. Little is known about these rulers besides their accomplishments and their great works. We have rough estimates of the years in which they ruled, but there are important pieces of information about them that remain uncertain, even after centuries of archaeological investigation. In many cases, we are not even entirely sure of their heritage. Sometimes, for instance, research cannot tell us for certain if one pharaoh was really the son of the preceding pharaoh or if they were brothers. For our purposes, we can say that Zoser was the most important pharaoh of the third dynasty. In the fourth dynasty, perhaps the greatest dynasty for pyramid building, Khufu and his son Khafre were the most notable rulers. During the fifth dynasty, there are no pharaohs whose names we need to remember, but it is significant to note that the royal religious focus at this point turned more closely to the sun god Ra, and therefore less attention was given to pyramid building, and more attention was given to the constructions of temples devoted to this deity. Furthermore, there was increased military and marine activity during this dynasty, as Egypt began to flex its muscles in the Mediterranean and in the Red Sea. Now, the pharaohs of the 3rd through 5th dynasties, as far as we can tell, were truly despots. I briefly discussed this phenomenon during an earlier episode, the rule of one sole person in certain regions of the world, 
particularly in the ancient Near East. These early pharaohs were nearly everything that we might imagine a king to be in a fairy tale, a supreme ruler with no need to regard the opinions of others. They probably also owned the lion's share of the land, and they were treated as demigods. However, any such system eventually wears on its subjects who come to resent the power of the despot. What is surprising in the case of Egypt is, is that such despotism lasted for so long, for several hundred years. During the 6th dynasty, though, this power finally began to fade. The governors of the ancient gnomes, those city-states that were originally independent before the unification process in Egypt during the 4th millennium BC, these governors began to acquire and to demonstrate more power during this time. They managed to turn their posts into hereditary fiefs, and the centralized nation of Egypt slowly turned into a feudal empire, with kings increasingly dependent on the goodwill and cooperation of these governors. This is an important moment in Egyptian history, primarily because it is a political pattern we shall see played out again and again in Western history, as the focus of power and control alternates between one centralized region or person and a wider, more confederate distribution of power when people react to the burdens of centralization. One of those burdens which drives resentment against despots and against any kind of powerful centralized government is taxation. Taxes were driven high by the incredible cost of pyramid building and the numerous other works which the Old Kingdom pharaohs ordered to be built. The burden fell, of course, primarily on the farmers in the fields drenched by the Nile and the tradesmen in the growing cities. But it was the nomarchs, the governors of the gnomes, who had to resort to increasingly drastic measures to collect those taxes and who had to deal with the inevitable backlash and uprising that results when you tax people into desperation. It was the nomarchs who began to assert their own independence and power against the throne. It must have been quite a story, this generations-long struggle between royalty, nobility, the priesthood, and the people. We will see it play out again several times in Western history, especially when we study the French Revolution. However, our knowledge of this struggle in ancient Egypt is limited, as is our time and our focus. So for the moment, let's turn our eyes away from the mysterious political drama in the cities strewn along the banks of the Nile River. Let's turn them away from the details of the succeeding administrations and towards the monuments that the Egyptians left behind, those that stand now starkly against an endless blue sky standing over arid Egyptian deserts. The period of the Old Kingdom is also known as the Age of Pyramids because it is during this period that the greatest pyramids were built in Egypt. The custom of building these immense iconic monuments would fade over the centuries and then become rediscovered more than once. With an age of renewed pyramid building in Egypt occurring as late as the 8th century BC when the land came under the influence of rulers from Sudan who constituted the 25th dynasty of kings. And in the Sudan itself, south of Egypt, there would be Egyptian-style pyramid construction as late as the 3rd century AD. It is curious to think that Egypt produced the greatest pyramids so early, comparatively, in its history. Yes, the nation had been unified for some 500 years already, but it would continue in existence for more than 2,000 years after that, and yet it would never again equal the architectural accomplishments of the Old Kingdom, at least in terms of pure size and simple audacity. 
Let us consider first, then, the Great Pyramid, built by King Khufu, who, due to the passage of time and the quirks of translation through multiple languages, is sometimes called Cheops. This pyramid, and some others, rests on the Giza Plateau, near the modern-day city of Cairo. The Great Pyramid is huge, to put it simply. Only in the past hundred years have humans been able to build structures of similar height and mass, though some say that the original Lincoln Cathedral in England, in England, built in the Middle Ages, was slightly taller. Nevertheless, even if that was true, the Great Pyramid's mass was certainly much greater. More than two million huge limestone blocks, some of them weighing as much as 80 metric tons, were used in the construction of the Great Pyramid. Together, they weigh more than six million metric tons. The length of each side of this pyramid is um, 230 meters, and it was originally nearly 150 meters tall. But more interesting than its pure size, perhaps, is its coordination with the cardinal directions. Today, we allow computers to determine for us which way is north. If you go out and get an old-fashioned compass, you can find magnetic north, but not true north. Even today, Egyptologists and other researchers are not sure how the Egyptians aligned the faces of the pyramids almost exactly with the cardinal directions, with one side facing exactly due north and another due east, and so on. Just the precision of the pyramid shape is enough to astound modern-day investigators. Its directional alignment is further sign of the surprising sophistication of Egyptian architectural science. To this day, researchers continue to debate the possible ways in which the builders may have achieved such accuracy and precision. I should note here that the debate continues about the various possibilities involved in the construction of the pyramids. However, it is not necessary to posit extraterrestrial intervention or assistance. I would not bother, bother to bring up this absurd contention, and it is absurd in a number of ways. I would not bother to bring it up within the context of this podcast, but for the fact that it really is a vile insult against our ancestors and their accomplishments. Just as many people today cannot believe that ancient people memorized tales such as the Odyssey because they cannot muster up the dedication to do the same, just so they insist that people in the past could not have done something so difficult as to build one of the Egyptian pyramids. I contend that we have simply lost the habit of doing hard things, of making incredible sacrifices, of organizing with such a grand scope, and we turn to absurd explanations because it is easier to believe that aliens did it than to accept that our ancestors did something for which we no longer have the cultural energy. Perhaps these beliefs allow us to stop criticizing ourselves for our societal failures, for our own increasing inability to accomplish great works. But regardless of this modern disbelief, there are many ways in which the Egyptians may have accomplished the construction of the pyramids. One must remember that for portions of the year, especially during the flooding of the land, they had the muscle of the entire populace sitting idle. While there is common belief that the pyramids were built by slaves, even the ancient Greeks thought so, as evidenced in the writings of Herodotus, the truth is that the labor force, which would have otherwise been dangerously idle, was drafted from the native populace, employed, and compensated for their work. Now, a brief digression here, it would still be fair from a modern perspective to compare these workers to slaves. After all, they were probably conscripted in some manner. They certainly weren't independent contractors working in a market economy, freely choosing to work on the pyramid rather than some other construction project. And with the king of Egypt seen as a deity, only temporarily here on earth, and who would return to the world of the gods after his death, you could say that all Egyptians were essentially slaves. 
Those in the administrative structure, the vizier and the priests, would have been very influential slaves for sure, but nevertheless, they would not have been equals with their ruler. More on slavery and servitude in Egypt when we come to the story of the Israelites and their departure from New Kingdom Egypt, perhaps a thousand years after the fall of the Old Kingdom. But let's get on with the construction of the pyramids. Now, to further support the idea that earthlings rather than aliens built the pyramids, waterways could have transported most of the stones, all the distances involved, and the Egyptians were great canal builders. It has already been established, in fact, that artificial waterways were built near many of the pyramids. And finally, as hard as it may be to believe, the ancient Egyptians also probably just did incredibly hard things, those involved in cutting, transporting, and assembling the massive stone blocks used in the construction of the pyramids. While they would have needed immense mountains of human muscle for the job, they probably also used a variety of stone, copper, and bronze tools to fashion the huge blocks, unevenly sized, into one gigantic monument to human achievement. After all, as I described in the episodes on the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, people had already organized to mine metal ores and to process them into ingenious alloys thousands of years prior to the Egyptian Odyssey. They already had tools for cutting, carving, sanding, and otherwise shaping stone and copper and other metals. Laying out the products and innovations of Bronze Age societies, we can see that all the instruments for building the pyramids were already there. The only additional thing the Egyptians had to do was to provide the will. The despotic Egyptian kings, and I use the term despotic descriptively and not pejoratively, their despotic and all-powerful kings proved themselves capable of driving their subjects to carry out this indomitable will. If we get past the how of the pyramids, past the apparent mystery of their construction, we come to the why. Why did Zoser build his step pyramid? Why did Khufu build the Great Pyramid? We know that the Great Pyramid, like many pyramids before and after, was a tomb. Khufu had himself buried here as well as his wife. But he invented neither the custom of pyramid building nor the custom of burying himself and his family inside one. Rather, he continued a tradition that had started many hundreds of years before, as evidenced by the various remains of pyramids and ziggurats that continue to turn up in archaeological investigations in the Near East. And what was the purpose of this tradition? For the earliest pyramids, those that we have only recently disinterred or discovered through the latest technological innovations, we cannot say for sure why they were built, but we know that Khufu's pyramid, the Great Pyramid, was a tomb, as were the pyramids built after it. But there are many ways to build a tomb. Why the pyramids? Why such grandeur? So we have finally come around to the part of this episode that historian Will Durant might have identified as the most important in trying to understand the ancient Egyptians, the matter of religious belief. In the previous episode on Egypt, I described how in the most ancient religions, especially in the most ancient religions, that spiritual practices were largely practical. You sought the intercession of a god or a goddess for advantage in your personal life or you begged his or her forgiveness in an act of atonement, or you thanked the gods for a healthy child, for a promotion, or for victory in battle. But even at this juncture in the Egyptian timeline, a new idea begins to appear in the spiritual milieu. This is the matter of the soul and its potential for eternal existence, for an afterlife. 
Initially, from what we can tell, the possibility of life after death may have only been a matter for the king or his close family. We can only be sure that, after the passage of many centuries, some form of immortality became a possibility for all Egyptians, and interactions with the gods acquired a new purpose, not only to ensure some form of happiness during this earthly travail, but to ensure that the soul would not die, that it might persist eternally. Now, discussing this matter from a Western perspective is a little difficult. The Egyptians had a distinct view of the soul, indeed of the whole human persona or human being when compared to Western views. In addition to the physical body, there was not just a soul, some immaterial counterpart to the flesh. Instead, the Egyptians recognized aspects of being, such as the personality, the will, the name, and so on. Indeed, ancient Egyptians may have been surprisingly comfortable speaking with modern psychologists about the ego, the superego, and the id, the conscious and the unconscious. Their conception of the human existence was actually even more layered. For our purposes, what we might call the soul, the Egyptians called the ka, K-A, ka. They hoped that it might survive the death of the body and live on in a spiritual world. Now, Egypt endured for thousands of years, and it is not possible on this podcast about the Western traditions to detail the evolution of this matter in the Egyptian mind. Let it suffice to say that there was to be a reckoning at the end of life, and a man or a woman's acts of right and wrong, their sins and their good deeds, were to be weighed in a balance, and their everlasting fate to be determined by which side of the scale was heavier. In the earliest days, during the Old Kingdom, however, such a reckoning may not have been a possibility for anyone but the king, who was increasingly associated with the gods, and to whom he would return, presumably with his family and servants, when his earthly life came to an end. Given this, it appears that the pyramids were perhaps attempts to ensure this promise which, even to the most devout believer, must have always seemed a little tenuous. After all, it is a rare man or woman today who can honestly say that they have no fears about death, that their fervent religious beliefs assure them of eternal happiness such that they do not even try to cling to this life. Most believers of any religion would probably admit death is an undiscovered country, and we cannot be sure that anything awaits us there, anything at all. So perhaps the pharaohs built the pyramids, prepared their own tombs with food and servants and special burial rites among the mummification, to make certain that they would complete the transition to the spirit world and join the gods for eternity. Perhaps like the rest of us, they were trying to impress the gods with their accomplishments and efforts. Just so today, a Christian might give to the poor and abstain from pleasures of the flesh to really seal the deal on eternal salvation. For the same reason, possibly, the pharaohs built their pyramids and accoutred them with beautiful decorations and adornments to try to catch the gods' attentions, perhaps perhaps, to guarantee that the soul would rise after the body had died. Now, when you imagine the Great Pyramid, or any other, You probably imagine its huge structure outlined against a blue sky, rising desolate from the desert sands. During the heyday of the Old Kingdom, however, had you stood anywhere in an Egyptian city, you would have been surrounded by numerous immense works of Bronze Age architecture, tall pillars, massive pyramids, broad walkways of stone, 
endless sculptures and statuary. Take, for instance, Khufu's pyramid. It did not stand alone. It was surrounded by an entire complex of buildings and landscapes, temples, cemeteries, and other pyramids, both large and small. The area would have been a busy place, not simply a ghostly relic of the past. After construction of the complex that he had always intended around his pyramid, Khufu's successors would add more pyramids and other structures to the Giza Plateau, which might have resembled an anthill in its hectic daily ebb and flow of people and their purposes. Khufu's son, Khafre, continued his father's building legacy, building his own pyramids to add to the entire Giza complex. None of the pyramids that surround the Great Pyramid match its height, and, for all we know, that may have been purposeful, or it may have been due to the waning power of the rulers after the apex that was Khufu. Ancient Egypt was not just a land littered with pyramids and their various attached buildings. This is easy to forget because all we have left today are the scattered ruins, often in stark surroundings. But no, this was a grand civilization with sprawling cities, waterways and highways, fortifications, palaces, temples, and expansive fields of wheat, barley, and other crops. And there were many other great works, many great architectural monuments that towered over this proud realm. Among them was the grand limestone sculpture that we now remember as the Sphinx, which is also located at Giza, not far from the Great Pyramid. It resembles, as best we can tell, a lion with the head of a man wearing an Egyptian crown. It is thought that the structure was probably sculpted during the reign of Khufu's son Khafre and was meant to bear his face, though there is a great deal of controversy about the origin and the meaning of this sculpture. It was carved out of the existing bedrock, rather than constructed, and it may have started out as a rock formation that already bore a certain resemblance to its final appearance. Just over 70 meters in length and some 20 meters high, it was a much more modest work than the pyramids in some ways. It probably occupied just several square workers for a few years to complete with simple tools such as hammers and chisels. The Sphinx stands out in our modern minds as an emblem of ancient Egypt, though. Interestingly, the Greek historian Herodotus, who describes much of Egyptian society in its great works, makes no mention of the Sphinx. Some have suggested that by his time, the 5th century BC, it, it may have already been largely ignored by the late period Egyptians of Herodotus's time, and perhaps it was partially covered by the shifting desert sands. But the Sphinx is a marvelous reminder of the accomplishments of the ancient world, even while it demonstrates how easy it is for the greatest works of the past to slip into oblivion. The latest technology, such as ground-penetrating radar, has allowed archaeologists to see that there are many more pyramids and other such monuments hidden underground all over the world. They have been almost literally covered over by the sands of time, as soil and dust amass around them, and any potential human caretakers find better things to do than to preserve monuments to past glory. Because these works, too, were the great achievements of their time, and now they are all but lost to the elements. The Great Pyramid itself like most Egyptian pyramids, was once covered with a white limestone casing that would have shone brilliantly under the Egyptian sun. That casing is long gone, lost to looters thousands of years ago. The Egyptians themselves, their later iterations during the time of the New Kingdom, robbed and plundered tombs and desecrated what their ancestors had considered sacred, into which they had poured their hearts and souls to construct.
shall we imagine these Egyptians, their royal overlords and the common men and women that built the pyramids, that farmed the fields and fought the battles that sustained Egypt's power in the region? What did they look like? How did they dress? How did they live? I briefly described in the first Egyptian episode how Egyptians worshipped and how they may have thought about their deities and their religious practices. I spoke little or not at all of their basic appearance and daily customs. This may seem to be done in the wrong order, but if you believe in historian Will Durant's axiom that to understand a man you must first understand his religion, then maybe you can see how it is really appropriate to understand first the mind or soul and then focus on the bodily things. Well, we know a little about the appearance of the pharaohs. You have probably seen depictions of them in their own contemporary artwork and in modern film and television. It is interesting to note that they wore a lot of ceremonial clothing and accessories, but that even these royal personages often went scantily clad. There are numerous sculptures and depictions of pharaohs naked from the waist up. This is probably just due to climate. And the average Egyptian, laboring in the fields, hauling stone to construct another royal monument or rearing children in the, in the home, sometimes these people simply went naked or wore but the simplest covering over their loins. Not only did they sometimes go without clothing, but the Egyptians also frequently did away with body hair to avoid the problems caused by lice and other vermin. Wealthier Egyptians could shave their heads and wear wigs, probably produced by the heads of poor subjects who could sell their hair in exchange for something that briefly raised them just out of a state of subsistence. The higher up the ladder one went in terms of wealth and power in Egyptian society, the more likely you would find that the Egyptian, the Egyptian individual used cosmetics of some sort. Indeed, even the study of a society as ancient as Egypt shows that the common perception of our ancestors, leading simpler lives without so many distracting accessories, is probably false. They used a wide variety of herbal and other products to care for their bodies and their odors. Even freshly entered into the Bronze Age, people were already worried about their appearances, about the smell of their breath, about the health of their bowels. We know this from discovered texts that many Egyptians gave themselves enemas to maintain their health. As for what they actually looked like, their facial features, their hair and skin color, their size and height, you may observe Egyptian art, Egyptian art, but you can also look at the Coptic Christians of Egypt today. Constituting perhaps 10% of the modern population of this country, they are also the remaining genetic reservoir of the ancient Egyptians, since the Muslim population is a mixture of bloodlines descended in particular from both the ancient Egyptian population and from the Arabs who conquered the land in the 7th century AD. The Copts, as they are called, are believed to be the direct ancestors of the ancient Egyptians. They look much like any other people of the Mediterranean, with dark hair, dark eyes, and dark skin. There is one remaining thing that should be cleared up about the ancient Egyptians, though. For many centuries, and even in academic circles, it was understood that the Egyptians practiced sister marriage, essentially committing incest openly and purposefully. In other words, it was believed that it was common for Egyptian men to marry their sisters and to procreate with them. There was some linguistic evidence to support this idea, as the Egyptians used the words for brother and sister to speak of their spouses. Furthermore, it was believed that property was passed down through the female line, so it was assumed that men married their sisters in order to preserve the family property. However, modern consensus seems to be that this was never actually a common or even a marginally accepted practice among Egyptians. It is known that some of the pharaohs did marry close kin, usually sisters, 
but there are instances of kings of Egypt marrying their daughters, and in the case of Ramses II, during the New Kingdom, the pharaoh appears to have married daughters as well as a granddaughter. Now, this does not necessarily mean that incest was practiced in these cases, though it is possible, since the pharaoh considered himself a god, and the gods, as any mythology student knows, married among themselves, as Zeus married Hera, his sister. Since each pharaoh had several wives and concubines, it is entirely possible that these marriages had some other symbolic purpose. However, recent studies into the corpses of royal mummies suggest that there was probably some truth to this idea, as inbreeding appears to be the probable cause of certain physical defects de detected in their cadavers. Now, we all know that incestuous unions lead to weaker, sicker offspring, whether the rulers of the Old Kingdom engaged in incestuous marriage or no, they stayed strong through several dynasties. But by the Sixth Dynasty, the nomarchs, or the nobility that governed the gnomes, the ancient city-states that had been unified to form Egypt, these men began to acquire or reacquire power that their forebears had once retained, and they slowly reduced the power of the king. After the Sixth Dynasty, we have even less precise knowledge about the political and cultural events in Egypt. After the last king of the Sixth Dynasty died, there followed a period of roughly 125 years in which more than four dynasties are recorded. Egypt appears to have been divided during this time, perhaps even devolving into Upper and Lower Egypt once again, or into even more polities, until in the middle of the Eleventh Dynasty, a king reunited the realm and began a new period of Egyptian history. We'll have more on that in the next episode on Egypt. The stage is being set. The pieces are all coming together. Though the subject matter may seem unrelated, each episode contributes to the foundations of our Western traditions. Egypt seems alien at first, and even after much study, there is no doubt that here is a culture which distinguishes itself from European culture in many ways. However, there are Egyptian strands woven into the tapestry of Western history. Herodotus was the first historian and the author of one of the primary texts that we will study in the series on ancient Greece that begins next year. In his History of the Persian War, he dedicates a great many pages to the history of Egypt. I quoted him with regard to Egypt at the beginning of this episode. He considered Egypt admirable, if only due to its longevity, but you can sense in his tone that there is much more. The Greeks of his time, and probably before, all regarded Egypt with a certain amount of reverence especially seeing as how they believed that they worshipped the same gods, only under different names. Perhaps the Greeks innately understood what we have only discovered in the last couple centuries of archaeology, that Egyptian culture poured into ancient Crete, to which I will dedicate a future episode in this unit, and that Cretan culture, quickened with the Egyptian genius, then poured into Mycenae, a city which will be the subject of the very first Greek episode next year. Once we begin to study ancient Greece, we will encounter cultural references that feel much more familiar, though we ourselves are much different than the Greeks. However, they are recipients, recipients as are we, even if in an indirect manner, of the cultural heritage of Egypt. There is much in, e in Greece and in the West that also comes from completely distinct sources, from Indo-European sources, but there is no doubt that Egypt, 
that land of immense enigmatic ruins and the ghosts of a hundred pharaohs gave Greece and the West in general something integral, something not to be forgotten. And after all, Egypt would be worthy of study anyway, because it is here, sometime during the second millennium BC, that the Israelites would sojourn for 400 years. From here, Moses would lead them into a desert perdition and pen the first books of the Bible, a religious text that would influence Western history for thousands of years. To Egypt would the Holy Family flee during the life of Jesus, and from this land would come more than one saint that would powerfully influence the Christian religion as practiced in Europe. In the next episode, I will divert from this westward, this brief westward glance once again to look at developments in Mesopotamia at the dawn of the second millennium BC. As we approach the rise of Persia, it will make more sense as to why I spend so much time on the ancient Near East, since the Persian Empire will be the background to most of the history of classical Greece. Until then, please remember to visit the website western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. Leave a comment, check out the source lists and the suggested reads, and if you can, contribute to the podcast through PayPal or Patreon. Thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.